Welcome to this episode of Mixed Extents. This is episode 12, and we're going to discuss SQL Pow. I'm Anthony Innocentino with my co-host, Andrew Presky and Mark Wilkinson. And today, we have two very special guests. We have Argenis Fernandez and Brian Jean Picaro. Argenis, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself today? Yeah. Uh, how are we doing, folks? I'm Argenis. I'm an MVP, MCM, a bunch of other three-letter acronyms that you guys don't care about. Uh, I, I currently am Nocentino's peer, but I will be shortly in transition to another gig. And I know Nocentino's a little bit, you know, sensible about that. So let's be careful with how, how we, how we talk about this. Uh, but yeah, I used to work at Microsoft on the SQL Server engineering team before I, I worked for Pure Storage and I was the, one of the PMs for SQL Pal. I paid short lift, but I was a PM for SQL Pal at some point. Right. Thanks for being here. Our Dennis Bryan, you would go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, I'm Brian Jamfcaro. I'm a principal software engineer at Microsoft. Um, I'm the tech lead and manager of the SQL Pal team. Uh, yeah, I've been working at Microsoft for 10 years, SQL Server the entire time, uh, SQL Pal since its inception. Wow. Okay, so we have two authorities on the subject, the business person, which may or may not know something about it, and an actual engineer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we get started, let's talk about <laughs> some announcements. Uh, it's the last month to get your brain melting t-shirts uh and if you're not familiar with there's the brain melting t-shirt thank you mark on. for fashioning that mm -hmm. uh are the other shirts still available the one oh, yeah. that andrew's the wearing? other the yeah. other shirts are always available the brain melt is the only limited edition it's so. special limited edition shirt yeah. it'll be okay, it'll be cool. available through the end of the month and so uh mark will add some links to us if you're not familiar that's the sole way that we fund the work that we do so please if you like the podcast if you love akb buy a shirt. It helps us pay for our Zoom licensing, web hosting, all that fun stuff. And it, the community has been great in supporting us and we thank you so, so much. So today's topic team is we're going to talk about SQL Pal, right? And SQL Pal is the core technology to enabling SQL Server to run on Linux. But we really haven't heard much about it as a technology recently, but we've seen it enable a bunch of other technologies. And I think really that's kind of the first thing that we want to dive into today as a topic team is what's SQL Pal for those that don't know? Why is it important? And what are the technologies that it's enabled over the last couple of years in the SQL Server space? It's open questions. Anybody can jump on that whenever they're ready. Well, how about, how about I, give you, I give you a little bit of my, my take on it and then Brian can, can give you his take on it. My take, the first thing that I, that I tell people about SQL Pal is that it probably shouldn't be called SQL Pal. It should be called something like Win32 Pal or something like that, right? Because <laughs> what it does is that enables Windows applications to run on other uh, environments and by environments I'll leave it very wide open because the architecture is extremely flexible and it allows for really any application any Windows application as long as you write the right <laughs> the right code and the right mappings underneath the hood you're able you'll be able to run a Windows application whenever you want um, and so the reason why it's called SQL Pal really is because it was used to run SQL Server for Windows on top of Linux right so the, there was some internal politics on Microsoft blah 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 it ended up being called SQL Pal because it was the only way that people would accept it at Microsoft, basically. So, Brian, how about how about you? You give us your take on that. Yeah, um, I mean, if you want to go a more technical route, it's essentially a, a user mode NT kernel, um, and the entire reason that the project exists is some very awesome research that started out at Microsoft Research um, years ago. It was called the Drawbridge Project. You can read about it online. Um, so the, the formal name for the user mode kernel was the libOS. And so the idea was you can build a library version of an operating system. And then uh, given a few APIs, maybe 40, 50 APIs, you can implement uh, the things needed by that library operating system on any environment. 
And so you can boot a, a Windows compatible environment on theoretically any architecture. And so obviously I mean, Windows has a huge API surface area and getting the entire thing uh, like bit for bit accurate and bug for bug accurate is uh, very complex, but at least being able to expose all the APIs and get like the 99% uh, use cases working um, is possible with technology and it's very powerful and you can use it for like all kinds of crazy, uh, interesting use cases. So did it start off specifically for, we were like, oh, we want to get SQL running on Linux or was this a separate project completely that the SQL team pulled in going, oh, we can use this, this looks good. So um, the original project was started for actually uh, two kind of different reasons. One was for um, application compatibility. So say you have all this, I mean, kind of classic Windows problems, Microsoft problems is we have to have this compatibility. Backwards compatibility is our bread and butter, right? Without it, we're just another software company. And so good and bad, that means we have a lot of legacy, right? So um, these Microsoft researchers were, I think, I mean, I know some of them, I'm not going to try to pretend I know all of their reasoning, right? But I think one of the things that they um, <laughs> they were trying to pursue in this work was, can we design an environment so we could move that compatibility stuff to a separate layer and then kind of keep everything working, but then advance the rest of the operating system or maybe even use a different operating system, right? Um, with more efficiency, different uh, properties, uh, more secure isolation, like all these different possible new OS research things, right? Could we do those, but also still keep the compatibility of um, the Windows API surface area and get keep all these old, very, very val valuable applications running, right? Um, and so the way that SQL Server came to use SQL Pal is that uh, Slava Oaks, uh, the leader of the, the SQL Server on Linux project and my former manager, um, he worked on a very cool project at Microsoft called Midori, which was a research operating system. And a couple, a few of the <laughs> developers of SQL Pal throughout its history have worked on Midori. Um, uh, they're a very talented team of people that worked on that project. Um, but one thing they did in Midori is they used a, a drawbridge as a Windows compatibility layer. So it was a completely net new operating system. Everything was written in um, M Sharp, which is like a, a version of C Sharp with extra stronger uh, properties. And okay. you, you can read all about it online, but um, so it was a different programming paradigm. And so the, they had this kind of problem, like we built all this awesome stuff, but what do we do about <laughs> all of our customers? Um, how do we actually get them to run things? So one thing they did in Midori was they had a, uh, a drawbridge uh, libOS layer that would run Windows 32 applications on top of the Midori kernel, but using the library OS and all of the, the drawbridge technologies. Um, so he had experience in, in that environment. So when the directors at SQL um, were, were asking him, how do we technically go about this? Like, do we rewrite all of the SQL server code to be native Linux elf binaries? Like, is that, that's going to take us man years, right? <laughs> um, and there have been multiple projects over the history of SQL server where very senior engineers have spec'd out, like, what do you think it would take to actually do this? Um, and I read a bunch of those documents and they're all like kind of that <laughs> doom and gloom, like we will be doing this work for years and years and years. And we will only at the end see like any significant like grain of uh, success and like possibility out of it. Right. So it's, it's not a very good <laughs> pitch for um, senior management. Right. Like what's the value prop on that? Uh, so Slava using his experience of Midori thought, Hey, maybe I could leverage this. And there's a researcher um, in MSR, Andrew Bauman, who we worked with very closely over the years, 
who actually had a prototype of running the libOS on top of Linux. And he had like a GUI app running and you could terminal server into it and all kinds of like crazy, awesome stuff. Um, and so he took that kind of very raw prototype and then got SQL Server to boot and run like and do a select one query in like a week. Slava like <laughs> kind of hacked on it, right? And working with his MSR researcher. So it was like kind of like an aha moment of like, oh, we could really like, <laughs> this is a real possibility, right? We could polish this thing up and uh, have an actual product uh, if we like worked really hard. Um, so that was kind of like the core inception. And then obviously like, it's like the classic 80-20 uh, problem, right? Where you have a lot of things and you have a lot of um, initial success, but then SQL Server is a very large product, right? So like getting all of the features and all of the APIs correct and then performance. And then it's also like, not to disparage my colleagues, but it's a research code base, right? So their priorities were different. They're trying to um, bring up a system with a huge surface area as fast as possible with a very small amount of people and um, different constraints, right? We're a product team. We're trying to ship our product with reliability and scalability and um, all these other kind of properties, right? So yeah, there's been a very long journey to kind of get um, it to be like a shippable product and something reliable and something that customers really can trust and use. But yeah, that's kind of like the journey we've been on and are still on. That's a pretty cool story. Thank you for kind of drawing that picture. Wow. So yeah, you said drawbridge during... Um during that segment there. We'll definitely add that to the resources uh, in the downloads with the podcast so that you all can grab and that. as well. We'll stick that on. Yep. <laughs> you guys can grab that and, and that, dig one into of the, that. I've read, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, uh, Joe Duffy is like an awesome blog to read about Midori. Um, he's one of like, he designed a lot of the programming principles and concurrency and stuff like that. And so he thought a lot about like, how do you do this kind of new modern design? And the blog posts are like, like rich, very <laughs> technical, awesome content. Cool. Sweet, sweet. Yeah, I've read that drawbridge paper a couple of times, and it's 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 some pretty heady stuff, uh, but definitely interesting to read. Well, the other thing about uh, drawbridge was an interesting kind of driver for it was sandboxing, right? Uh, the uh, the team at MSR that was looking into it, uh, they were motivated by their by their children installing Windows apps and not really being uh, observant of what would happen if they installed an app. So they would. Uh, they will really bring that up as a, as a driver for it. So what if it did something that's actually gonna sandbox your applications and prevent you from installing that nasty application on your urban system, but just sandbox it so that it wouldn't affect other aspects of the urban system. So that's another uh, key driver for, uh, for, uh, for drawbridge. That's so an interesting part of the story there. A fun fact, I guess, is that uh, WSL v1 is actually built on drawbridge technology. So the, the concept of a Pico process so a process that is like a shell of a process in which you can swap out um, the syscall table for that process and have it go to your driver instead. Uh, that was all designed by these drawbridge folks at MSR. And so it was designed for the original drawbridge project where they could swap in their driver and then that driver would intercept these 50 libOS syscalls and then they could reduce the attack surface for this process like greatly, right? Because it's now 50 API calls to audit and make sure that they're very secure and do the correct thing instead of the thousands of the full Windows uh, surface area. So yeah, that was another very cool um, aspect of the Drawbridge project. Interesting. So in going to move on to the kind of the next sec question, but kind of tie it on to what you just described. And so you talked about the, this 80-20 problem, right? You had to build this thing, got to work your prototype up real fast. And so I guess the question is really like, what were the biggest challenges uh, in, in bringing that online and what are, what continue, what's kind of still a thorn in your side or the big challenges that you want to solve in 
making SQL Pile a thing? Sure. So um, I guess like uh, debuggability is obviously something we had to work on a lot, right? But that's kind of um, it's like an interesting problem at Microsoft, right? Because Microsoft uh, having uh, excellent postmortem debugging tools is kind of like the they had mandatory for the experience. Like that's how we debug stuff. Um, that's how we resolve bugs and get things done in our test lab uh, from customers, everything. We, we need postmortem crash dumps and we need a, the ability to like click on that dump, open it on any machine and it works and you can go debug what happened. So the Linux environment is very different. Um, so the way that debugging works isn't normally as convenient in like one click. So we had to go build scripts and tools and automation to try to go um, make sure that we can make that environment as easy for our CSS engineers, our, ourselves, um, anybody that needs to investigate a SQL pile crash dump. Um, so yeah, that's like a huge challenge. So one of the things we did was build this um, debug bridge, which I think Eugene demoed publicly uh, in a talk that uh, Arjunas, uh, I myself and uh, my other fellow engineer, Eugene Birkov, um, demoed at a, a conference in Germany called All Systems Go. So you can go watch that live demo. And I think uh, Bob Ward and other folks may have demoed it at different sessions over the years. But uh, debug bridge is essentially a process that attaches to the SQL, SQL pile process and exposes a win debug endpoint. So it knows the win debug protocol and it allows you to attach a win debug debugger to a SQL pile process and it shows the window stacks. And so the, it's relatively simple, like conceptually, because the win debug protocol is pretty simple. It's like kind of like read memory, write memory, give me some of this metadata. Um, and so once you have that, we wrote this program on top of the LDB. So LVM is like this compiler framework um, for Linux or other, a bunch of architectures actually and operating systems. But they have a, a debugger project as well called LDB and they expose the debugger as a library. So you can write programs against that library. And so Eugene did a bunch of awesome work to drive LVM, uh, LDB to kind of know about this uh, win debug protocol and then expose this debug endpoint so we can actually use our normal debugger for the 99% use case of um, debugging inside the SQL pal sandbox. So like I call it a sandbox, but it's like a, a, a giant uh, process memory space, right? Because it's all one giant. Uh, memory address space with these different virtual processors running inside of it. Virtual processes, sorry. And so it gives you a view of everything happening inside of there. So there's kind of this other very small layer at the bottom, which is like all of our Linux specific code. So we actually have special extensions inside of our WinDebug environment that let us go inspect the very small Linux stack. And so it kind of works as an RPC mechanism where like the, the WinDebug extension writes to a special memory address that the debugger knows about. And then that's how we proxy commands. And then it can send like call stacks and uh, local variables and stuff like that uh, back to the client. And we can kind of look at both worlds at the same time from one debugger. And so tricks like that have been very valuable in actually making our developers productive and be able to figure out what's going on. Um, we also invest heavily in like debug scripts so we, we automate like extraction of information out of debug dumps very heavily so that you can know like which process is faulting, extracting all the ring buffers, filtering ring buffers, 
um, looking at all memory usage. So, so like all that stuff, we try to script um, for debuggability so we can make everything as easy and straightforward. Because it's like a very custom and different environment, we want any engineer to have a very easy time at like knowing what's going on and figuring out what's going on. That's very valuable. And we've dumped a bunch of time into it. Um, and so that was kind of like a lot of stuff we did in the beginning. So some of the more recent stuff we did was one thing that CSS uh, at, has asked us to do is if there's a way that they could easily symbolize these stacks, kind of like with DBC stack dump, we had the stack mm -hmm. dump text where you can kind of see, like a, get a vague idea of what's happening without actually having to open a dump because opening these dumps is kind of more complicated on Linux. So um, we have a new hire on our team, uh, uh, Francis, and he built this awesome tool. So we actually, uh, we dump a JSON file whenever SQL pal crashes. And so that JSON file has the memory address of the stack, essentially like a raw stack where it's like a memory address. And then we've enhanced it to have module offsets and actual PDB versions. So he now has a tool that can go look at that JSON file and then symbolize you a stack straight from that JSON file by going and fetching PDBs and kind of doing all the manual work uh, for you. So stuff like that, like it makes the lives of CSS like way better because they don't have to go <laughs> um, open every single dump now to figure out what's going on. Uh, it's stuff like, like we take for granted in the Windows world, right? But it, it really makes things easier and better and streamlines things. And, I don't know if we ever release that to customers because it relies on public symbols, but theoretically in the future, we could have um, symbols published for SQL pal and customers could use the same thing. Cool. I might've tried to figure out some of that stuff in my initial wanderings into <laughs> SQL Server on Linux. So I'm glad to hear that you guys are having the same challenges internally and are building, but you have 20 years of 30 years of experience on the Windows side and all those tools have been built. And so now it's, you know, you have to go ahead and do those same steps, I guess, for this platform. Yep. That's pretty cool to hear. Yeah. I mean, one so, thing also that uh, is very different is like the symbol server uh, environment doesn't even exist on Linux, like the way we know it on Microsoft platforms, right? So even getting symbols mm -hmm. is, can be complicated. So Red Hat actually shipped a thing called, I think they call it debug info D. So it's essentially, it's relatively new but it's a, a Linux equivalent of a symbol server. Um, and so we're hoping to um, use that kind of technology in the future to make everything a lot simpler as well. Kind of in the same vein of conversation, um, you've talked a lot about the, I guess the, the challenges. Was there anything that was, was there anything that you did during your SQL Pell development where you're on a Linux system and you're trying to do something and you're like, wow, I wish it was this easy on Windows. Is there anything that was better about this or is it I mean, mostly trying to make up and trying to catch up to what windows has already done i mean i was always uh, a unix like linux guy um so i'm very comfortable in that environment i was like playing around with FreeBSD and dragonfly bsd and like all these niche operating systems when i was like in middle school and stuff so that was like my fun <laughs> so i'm very comfortable I like that. So I was very lost when I first joined Microsoft, like for the first year or two, I was like, what is Visual Studio? Why do I have to do this? Like, this is weird. So you weren't um, alone there, buddy, just so you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like once I got my like Vim set up and like all my Unix tools working on Windows, like it became a lot better. So uh, I think like personally, I, it was a little bit, it was nice to be back in that environment, like in my daily um, work. 
uh, I kind of felt <laughs> re rejuvenated a little bit. Um, <laughs> and I, I mean, that's like kind of a tangential story. Uh, there was a, a meeting with Scott Guthrie, who is the leader of our organization at the time. This was maybe 20, 2014, 2015. And I got up at the all hands meeting and I was like, when are we going to do containers? Like the entire industry is going to containers and like, what's our story? We don't have anything. And this was before windows released any container technology. And I was like, we kind of have to go to Linux, don't we? Like to be able to make sure we don't lose this momentum. And, um, unbeknownst to me, there was a very like mid-level PM who's, he was tasked with researching containers on Linux. And that was like a secret project. Nobody knew about it. So he was like over in the corner, like shitting his pants. And like, <laughs> how, does this, how does he know? Like, how does he know about this project? Like what's going on? Um, but the, the VPs didn't like give me any hint that like anything was being talked about or anything. Um, but yeah, like, but that was my kind of excitement. Like I, I wanted to be back in that environment. I saw an opportunity and I was like, we should be doing this. And um, yeah, so like that kind of stuff I is way easier on Linux. I don't think anybody's going to argue that. Um, that is besides true. that, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's anything specific I can think of. Argenis, are you a Linux person too? Or are you mostly a Windows guy? Go figure. I was a Linux person before I became a Windows person. And then I, I, I kind of went back to Linux as, as I started working on SQL Cloud and other things. But yeah, I started Go Figure, Brian, with FreeBSD. That was actually a, the mm -hmm. operating system that I would manage. I used to work for the, one of the largest ISPs down in Venezuela. That's the operating system that we would use for our for our servers. And then eventually we started deploying Windows boxes, and that's how I came to learn about Windows and stuff. But uh, but I was very much a, a, a Linux guy. I was I was the first guy to deploy Linux in campus at my college. So this is like, <laughs> you know, 1992 kind of thing. So a long, 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 long time ago. But it's a it's been a lot of fun, you know, you know working with Linux at the beginning, and then retaking on Linux after it's like a fully grown, mature operating system. Uh, it, it, it's been fun to watch for sure. Same with Windows, by the way. Like Windows used to be crap, like utter <laughs> crap. Um, but I watch basically Windows NT, you know, develop into what's now Windows Server, and, and it's it's also been kind of amazing to watch the technologies develop on both sides. So huge investments, right, of of like people and and technology and resources into both, and it's just great to watch. So SQL Server goes on Linux, right, via SQL Pal, and so that enabled a whole run of technologies, right? So containers being the first one and the containers being the foundation of a lot of new things that we've seen, like, you know, Azure Arc enabled data services, big data clusters, all that fun stuff. Is there anything else um, without violating NDAs, right? Is there anything unexpected that's popped out of SQL Pals development that you can share with us publicly? Uh, I can allude to things, I think. Um, so so yeah, we're trying we, to be respectful to hear this episode, <laughs> are we? <laughs> so we try to run SQL Pal as a, what we call like an inner source project at Microsoft. So essentially like uh, an open source project, but for all of our internal customers. So there are numerous other product groups inside Microsoft who have able, who've been able to take advantage of SQL Pal um, for various different reasons. Um, so to answer your question, yes, uh, but yes. I don't think I can <laughs> say yeah. much more than that. But I had that spreadsheet when I was a PM. I had that spreadsheet with yeah. all the projects, <laughs> you know, the Microsoft that we were using, and the points of contact and all that. So that was always fun to watch. 
but let's bring it back to the beginning of the conversation, right? If you think about what SQL Pal does, right? It enables you to run a process inside of this thing on effectively, it seems like almost any platform because we're seeing Linux on Intel, on ARM and, you know, and so that you can kind of conjure up the possibilities in your head about what you can run on this thing and where, given that, especially with that layer, right? I just want to clarify a little bit, just so we don't take credit for other teams' work. Is SQL Power doesn't necessarily enable uh, ARM deployment, but we have a sister team that does very, very awesome compiler work that enables that scenario. Um, cool, but cool. there's nothing intrinsically about SQL Power that lets that work. And so, if you guys think about it, there's, yeah. the progression goes from like SQL Server on Windows running on top of SQL Power so that it's enabled now to run on Linux, so that it's uh, uh, you know compi compiled to run on ARM using this technology. So it's you know, all of the technologies get together so that people can enjoy something like a sure SQL database edge. Understood, understood. Thank you for that clarification. That was the follow-up question. I was, yeah, in my head coming there. So uh, preemptive, nice one. Thank you. <laughs> preemptive, pun intended. Um, so <laughs> let's go back to all systems go. So I watched that video when you guys did it back in the day and I scrubbed through it last night just to prep for today. Yes, I actually prepared. And so- Good for you, oh, buddy. Well, that's a dig at me, is it? <laughs> <All> right. <laughs> No, no, no. That was a dick at me because I took a bunch of time, right? Yeah. He had to pat himself on the back after spending uh, 10 or 15 minutes uh, with everyone on the call. I think it's called self-deprecating humor, but whatever. Yeah. And, uh... <laughs> so, so the goal of that conference is user mode stuff, right? And being able to facilitate execution and user mode and stay there. Um, why did, why is, was SQL Pal positioned there at user mode? And are there special things that can happen inside of SQL Pal that can enable certain performance characteristics of SQL Server, maybe staying in user mode more often and to having to switch out the kernel mode. You kind of dive into either that, what you talked about during that talk or like what you see is the vision for SQL Pal. I guess, will, context. I guess I will tell you a little bit about how we ended up presenting at that conference because that was, that was <laughs> I, I'll take partial credit for that. Um, a friend of mine on the, well, on the open source team at Microsoft uh, reached out and said, hey, do you guys know about this conference? I think you should be speaking at it. And I was like, what is this? So I started digging into it and I came to show it to Slava and the rest of the team and, uh, and Brian and, and George and a bunch of other folks. And they're like, you know, I think there's something here. Like we should, we should maybe, you know, prepare a presentation for this. So we submitted and we got picked. That was sort of like the first time that Microsoft had ever presented at this conference, right? And it was all about user mode technologies. And one of the biggest kind of drivers for SQL is to try to keep things in user mode, right? So to prevent those context switches between ring three and ring zero, your CPU, right? Those are expensive uh, uh, operations in computing. And overall, you know, uh, tr try, uh, the design of SQL is essentially made so that most operations take place uh, in user mode. And so Brian obviously can give you a ton more information on that than I can, because, you know, also with the guy delivering the pitches and he's the guy actually ready to go. <laughs> uh, but but it, it, the conference literally went like that, right? At the beginning, it was me, you know, just giving them a, a, a 10 second pitch before people started throwing tomatoes and eggs at me. And I got out of the way <laughs> and, I let, and I let the engineers actually do the talking, right, Brian? Yep. So, so, uh, so what's the what's the benefit then to SQL Server and conversely the DBA for something staying in user mode? Why is that important to us? So uh, inherently, syscall context switches are very costly, right? You're entering a different environment. You have to save off all the registers. There's a bunch of stuff that happens for security reasons. Um, it's kind of like a well-known OS thing, right? That you want to avoid context switches for performance. Um, so staying out of the kernel spending more time in user mode doing your actual work is always a good thing for most applications. Um, 
SQL Pal tries to do this as much as possible. Um, there's definitely things we can do better. Uh, so for example, the reason we wrote the SOS scheduler was kind of one of those reasons, right? We can schedule our own threads. We can spend more time inside the SQL server doing real meaningful work instead of waiting for the operating system to kick us back, right? And so we have a lot of the SOS code inside um, LibOS. That's kind of one of the core uh, principles. Uh, all of the people that worked on SOS also uh, worked on or worked on SOS at the time, also worked on uh, SQL Pal in LibOS. So it was the same group of people who were using all the same common code. And, but one thing we kind of Slava alluded to when he first released or kind of talked about publicly LibOS and SQL Pal uh, was he wanted to get to this vision of all of the scheduler running inside um, LibOS. So kind of sharing the scheduler between SQL Pal and SQL Server running inside the same process space. Uh, we did a lot of work for that, but it hasn't really panned out the way that we had hoped, right, for performance. It kind of, we never really saw the performance gain that we hoped, but it was a very huge, complex system we had to build to make that work, but we never saw the benefit of it. So we never really pursued and shipped that full vision that Slava had laid out publicly. Um, but we're kind of revisiting it now and thinking, is there a different way we could do something similar where we can at least keep LibOS in our quote unquote user mode, right? Or the, the real user mode on Linux, um, not our fake kernel mode. So <laughs> yeah. And so maybe we could utilize the SOS scheduler and have the scheduler running in both places. Maybe that's like mm -hmm. one idea, right? So essentially it's like a virtual processor concept on any operating system where um, we schedule and like any event essentially becomes an SOS event. So any real NT event, we actually implement as an SOS event, for example. And then the scheduler synchronizes threads and schedules them smartly, theoretically. Um, so that's one thing we're still working on. Um, no promises on if it ever ships or if we ever see any real perf gain from it, but we're pursuing it. Um, that's kind of always been an in-progress work item. We had like many, many, many roadblocks to getting there. Um, just because of the architecture of the code we were running. Um, and so kind of behind the scenes, we've been uh, chipping away at stuff, uh, improving things and kind of removing those roadblocks. And so now we're at a point where kind of in recent um, past few, like year or so, we've been able to kind of start working on actually trying out some of these ideas and seeing if it actually makes sense. Which awesome. I find and fascinating because if you're like, I said, let me, let me chip in here. Performance on SQL Pal is amazing. It's just as good as it is on Windows. <laughs> and so if this guy's an improvement performance, I mean, they could potentially be a lot more better than Windows. Oops, I said that. <laughs> you don't, but you don't work for Microsoft. It's all good. No, that's right. <laughs> no, that's right. But it I makes mean, sense, right? That so to drive home that point, right? If I keep stuff in user mode, I can do work without context, which is, it's just going to be faster. And so that's awesome to see those kind of, I don't like it's like a side effect of you know what you guys did I guess and then here we are and you have like this technology that you can continue to cultivate to get more optimization out of that's interesting. There are some benchmarks just to be clear that we are faster already on Linux than we are on oh, Linux. Oh, there you go. Oh, the are you talking about the uh, TPCC stuff that was published? TPCH. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll grab those links and drop them in. But yeah, basically that was what about two years ago, three years ago, they uh. Was it number one, wasn't it, for a little bit? 
I don't recall. For yeah. TPCH, it's still number one, I think. Yeah. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah, we'll grab those links and bring them. It's, it's, I think I saw, I did, at, so at Tuga IT in 2017 in Lisbon, Slava taught a pre-con, and I was lucky enough to be there at that pre-con. And he showed the one, not the actual demonstration, the, the, the test run, but a, he did a demo of that with the data ingestion and just pegging out all of the cores on the system completely in user mode or almost completely in user mode. So you're looking at HTOP, which you're, you know, you usually see a lot of red on the left. It was almost all green all the way across. And that was incredible to see. And so red being kernel mode, uh, green being user mode. Good stuff. I think this is actually driving the storage industry into uh, starting to embrace a lot more user mode as a core, uh, as a core means to get to drive bits from or drive bytes from uh, from point A to point B because you know you just everyone's like desperately trying to minimize latency on systems, and mm -hmm. if you remove syscalls from the from the code path, then you're effectively going to perform you're effectively going to perform better. And so, you know, start thinking about what the storage industry goes in general, like persistent memory, you know, that embraces uh, fully embraces user mode, and then other technologies that also embrace, you know, uh, RDMA-based concepts. Like it becomes it becomes interesting, right? Like you know, all of these things can merge together to provide extreme extremely good performance and extremely low latency to workloads. Man, I have like four ways I want to take this conversation now because we actually have that in the listing of questions. Is like, what are the hardware innovations that you see coming next? But just for the audience listening, um, so what's going to drive a switch from user mode to kernel mode, right? It's going to be I.O. And basically when I have to go either dispatch an I.O. or receive that I.O. coming back in, right? Whether it's memory or not memory or the network or disk, right? And so is anything special happening to facilitate for that inside of SQL Pal or are you tr using traditional mechanisms or just to kind of dispatch I.O.? Like what's going on to kind of drive to keep things in user mode without having to reach out and get stuff, right? Sure. So we utilize the normal kind of APIs uh, or surface area on Linux that most high performance applications use where like use um, ePoll for like socket network socket uh, message notification. And it's a lot of kind of weight polling where we try to set up in SQL PAL, these uh, IO pumps. And so we normally have a pump per CPU. And then we kind of, kind of like, it's similar to NUMA, right? Where you want your everything happening on that CPU to be local to that CPU. Um, and so we have the, uh, these IO pumps inside the libOS and they constantly are pulling information from the host extension. And the host extension is pulling it in turn from the kernel, right? So. Most of the time, they're just sitting there parked waiting for event notification, but then they wake up, they immediately push that notification back up all the way to libOS, and then we surface it from libOS back to the application. And so it, yeah, it's kind of like, a, it's not really anything special or innovative. It's kind of like the normal OS thing where you, you, you try to pump as fast as possible and pull these events up into the environment. So that's one kind of thing we didn't talk about is uh, the technology is very cool, but the one constraint that is kind of frustrating about working on SQL Pal is that you have this very minimal layer between the libOS and the host extension. And we want to mm -hmm. keep it minimal for um, 
compatibility and all the other kind of interesting environments that SQL Pal can run on. It just it doesn't make sense to break that. That's like the <laughs> one of the key advantages, right? If you want to bring up a new system, you can do it very quickly and very efficiently just by implementing this thing. So if we expand it, then like everything, every little bit we expand it makes it a little bit harder to bring up a new application and then get everything working. So that's like a real kind of con constant in our minds as developers of this kind of project is how do we add new features, make everything perform it, but still keep this thing minimal because you're constantly wanting to poke holes. Like, what about this? I want to, <laughs> I want to do this really fast. How do I get this all the way through there? Right. And um, without expanding things too big. So that's one of the things that we kind of, we said, okay, we need the dedicated way to pump IOs. So we, we had to poke a hole in this API layer. We, we added a new API that the libOS mm -hmm. now depends on. And that's kind of dedicated specifically to pumping IOs network and disk. Um, yeah, and in the future, I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to use like really cool technologies like IOU rings um, once they have more, kind of a, a more broad kernel adoption, right? Because right, right now it's like very, very bleeding, bleeding edge kernels. Um, yep. And a lot of, you're seeing awesome results from a lot of databases that are adopting them and testing stuff out, right? So we are watching it very closely. We're trying to see what we can do in the same vein of trying yeah, to- that's a cool. So, so for those that don't know, IOU ring is a, essentially a user mode ring buffer. So you, you call a special API to Linux kernel, it maps you two rings, uh, or you can configure it like all kinds of different ways, but essentially it maps you two rings uh, into your memory address space, a ring buffer for submission and a ring buffer for completion. And so you don't have to actually enter the kernel to actually issue or complete an IO or receive an IO completion. You just write to this ring buffer, um, it wakes up, sees it, or pulls it constantly essentially. And then we'll go handle everything in the background and then um, post the completion back into the other ring buffer. And you can wait on that ring buffer, like via a, a syscall that suspends you, or you can pull it. Um, and they're actually abstracting it so that they can do many different kinds of syscalls uh, via IOU rings, not just networking or, or disk IO. You can mm -hmm. theoretically, if they add support, do any syscall via IOU ring. So it's a very exciting time for uh, Linux kernel nerds, I guess, uh, <laughs> where the future is very bright. Uh, I read some of the, on the last test that we're pushing 3.5 million IOPS on a single device. That's yeah. crazy, crazy, crazy performance. Insane numbers, yeah. Yeah, that's mad. <laughs> okay. So I've got a question a little, uh, a little higher up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, should anybody be using SQL on Linux outside of a container in production right now? I mean, it's kind of, if you think you should, then sure. I mean, if you don't think you should, then no. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I think there's real scenarios where, I mean, if you have an entire Linux shop and you have no Windows machines deployed, does it really make sense to add a Windows machine just for SQL Server? I'm I'm not sure it does, but it depends on your business requirements and if you have people to manage it and keep it secure, things like that. Um, but I'm I don't know. I <laughs> I'll give you my take on it. Sure. Please. My, so uh, first of all, I think the SQL Server on Linux, the one that you're deploying on VMs or metal metal, it's kind of like a like transitional product, right? I mean, it was it was clearly had to be there in order for containers to be there, right? And so if I am a new customer that, uh, or I'm, I'm a customer that runs SQL Server today, 
And once the run SQL server on Linux, because of reason X, right, uh, I may choose to go directly to containers because that's the path forward for like everyone in the industry, right? We look at everything is being Kubernetesized. Is that a, is that a verb? If it, is it is now. It is now. Just made it a verb. And containerized. So I think I think Chris Taylor has a presentation called that, so we have to give him credit, but it's okay. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. awesome, he awesome, does. Chris. I love that word. Uh, anyway, uh, point is that if, if the ultimate goal is that you want to containerize things on Linux because that's a preferred uh, uh, operating system operating environment for containers, then I mean you may potentially go through a phase of growth for yourself and your team where they become comfortable using SQL Server on Linux on VMs or, or bare metal. You don't necessarily have to go through that though. You may just land on containers at once. The, the learning curve may be a little bit steeper if you do that. Sound, sound about right? Um, but uh, I think, I think the, the team at Microsoft has, have made it very clear that they're going to support all the scenarios. Uh, they're going to support bare metal VMs and containers and Kubernetes and all these things. Uh, there might be some differences between, between how you do, for example, HA on containers versus how you do HA on VMs and, and bare metal. But, in the end, you're just running SQL Server because that's really what, what the gist of it is, right? The programmable surface of SQL Server continues to be the exact same, whether you're running on Windows, on containers, or VMs. Yeah, I think at, at a conference a couple of years ago, there was a slide during a keynote and talking about what SQL Server and Linux enabled. So pretty much all the way from Azure Edge to on-prem and everything in between, right? So BBC, Azure Arc and Data Services, the stuff that's in Azure's native PaaS services, and it was just neat. You have this single surface area across the whole thing without sound too marketing. That's a big deal to people that build stuff, right? Build applications and being able to target code against the platform. That's extremely stable regardless of where it's deployed. Um, and so that's a pretty powerful concept. Well, without divulging to... much, go, go figure. Mm -hmm. Without divulging much, because I can't really talk about this much. My next job is really going to be taking SQL Server on Windows and moving it to SQL Server on Linux. That's literally going to be my, my next job. I don't know if we if you heard, but it's been done. <laughs> oh, you mean like? <laughs> you know what I mean? Some you mean a product, <laughs> right? So, um, uh, you, you get what I'm saying, right? I'm moving literally yeah. thousands of SQL Server instances from from Windows to Linux. So it, it's. People are doing this, right? This is what I want to highlight. Uh, this is not, you know, some some fancy uh, lab thing that you may want to try or a cute container that you may want to run on your laptop, right? Like people are actually running production workloads on this today, and and it's here to stay. Like I think at some point it's going to be the preferred way of deploying SQL Server. The many years from now, that will be the case. I, I think. And I, I don't know what, I don't know what of, you guys think about that. Well, to kind of reinforce your point. Um... You know, Microsoft is definitely taking it serious. Um, we're doing some testing with SQL on Linux right now, which might have been a driver for that question. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, we put in a support request because we're trying to get uh, cross-domain authentication working. Um, and it was a very helpful support engagement. Like, it was, it's it's definitely not a situation where you're getting treated like you're you're using some completely out-there technology that nobody wants to support kind of thing. It's definitely fully supported, and they were they were very helpful in the case. So that I mean, was to be honest, uh, that was main, cool to experience. <laughs> the main thing we found with uh, moving over to uh, moving one of our instances over into a Linux environment is that SQL's fine. SQL's working there. It's all the stuff that we've deployed around it that's causing us <laughs> issues because it's been like twenty years of running SQL <laughs> Server on Windows. So when we try and say we've got a custom PowerShell module that we want to deploy to it, it's just uh, it's just not going to work. Or <laughs> SQL Server agent jobs calling PowerShell 
uh, calling PowerShell scripts, things like that. But actually just bringing the databases online and letting them run, not a problem at all. But yeah. those are I paradigm shifts, right? You're shifting a paradigm of how you used to do things on Windows to how you now do them on Linux. And there's obviously all these dependencies that you never understood about your old system that you're now fully understanding because they're preventing you from doing some, from going something else, somewhere else. And that's a good thing. Like you're learning about your system itself and yeah. trying to make it better and take it, make it more modular, blah, 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 blah. And working with customers, um, they talk about how hard deploying SQL Server and Linux and Active Directory domain is. I'm like, no. It's just that Windows made that so darn easy when you had to do it before. Now you're seeing how the sausage gets made of actual <laughs> dealing with Kerberos and key tabs and all that stuff. Microsoft just hit that behind a fancy <laughs> right-click UI or power, <laughs> or power command. That, that's one way right? to, put, to put some positive spin on it, Anthony, because I'd say it's awful on, the, on Linux. Uh, but it's an say, experience to... as, as Linux nerds that we've had to deal with before, like well, of can, getting can things I, bolted together. Can, so. can, Brian, can you get one of your Linux friends to just build something like Okta for, for, for Linux so that we don't have to deal with the pain of Kerberos? Um, I'll I'm, get right on it. Sure. I'm, yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but but you, you, get, you, get the, you get the point though, right? I mean, it's, things are super complex on other environments because they, they are not fully developed. The use cases were never driven by a PM. Right. No one took the role of PM and say, oh, this should work like this. The, you know, the experience should be based around this. Mm -hmm. It's a bunch of code that got compiled over the years. Right? Like literally some of the traces of the original MIT code for Kerberos is still there, right? Uh, and most of it is actually. And so, you know, we are where we are precisely because, you know, that part hasn't evolved the operating system. As demand increases on that particular uh, part of the operating system, things get better because that's, that's just how open source works. So it's just a matter of time, I guess. I think the authentication world though is going to go I think it's going to advance very quickly in the next coming years because kind of like, I don't know if you've seen, but like Google has this model um, for like zero trust computing for their corpnet. Uh, and I think a lot of companies are trying to go that similar way, right? Where how can we remove kind of our central IT infrastructure? How can we move to like a more like nobody's trusted, we authenticate everybody in a kind of a WAN situation instead. Um, that's like a much more, secure uh, and kind of flexible environment. And so I think to be able to do all of that stuff, I think the authentication story on Linux is going to have to advance and um, make a lot of leaps and bounds advances. And I've seen some startups kind of start going that way. So I think we're kind of in this prime time where things are going to start going uh, more usability route um, yeah, on Linux, in my personal opinion. Yeah, it but makes so, sense because we're at, it's got to be because you're looking at 20 years of Kerberos plus, right? Just in Windows, let alone what it's been academically before that, right? I'm sorry, Andrew, go ahead. Oh, no, it's fine. I was just going to make a comment of it's a really, I say in my sessions when I'm talking about SQL Server and containers and on Kubernetes that it's a really exciting time to be working with SQL because these new platforms are coming up and the technologies like SQL Palette have enabled things like, uh, you know, the other teams that can use it to work with, um, uh, Azure SQL Edge and things like that. So I was going to say thanks to SQL Pal and Brian. Just massively thank you to your team. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of people involved far from just me or my Yes, but you're the one on the show. So. <laughs> oh, I think he froze. Did we lose Brian there? He's a little frozen right now. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what happened. Zoom crashed or 
my connection died. I don't know. Zoom it's, all, it's, it's all right, Zoom. It's no worries. Zoom does that. So welcome back. We had some technical difficulties, but here we go again. So we're going to have one more technical question. I'm going to throw it out there to the team. So external memory pressure, right? And this isn't like a stump the jump question. We're going to just kind of talk about the differences in Windows and Linux and things like that. So on the Windows side of the house, external memory pressure is effectively a solved problem, right? The processes can work with each other to kind of come to some sort of equilibrium so that the system just doesn't, well, kill processes at random. Now on the Linux side of the house, it's different, right? We have SQL PAL in play. And there's also the OOM killer, which I just recently learned is called the OOM killer, um, according to Argenis. And that will go and kill processes if the system is experiencing memory pressure to protect the overall health of the system. And so what's going on inside of SQL PAL to help kind of re, like kind of tell the external processes that something's bad is happening and vice versa. Can you dive into that a little bit? Sure. So we do try to monitor uh, CP or memory usage uh, on the machine and kind of try to predict when Umkiller might uh, take action and try to shrink mm -hmm. SQL Server. So essentially, the way that it works on Windows is you have these uh, two events that the kernel sets for you uh, when memory pressure is active. So there's high memory pressure and low memory pressure event. Um, and so we create those events inside the virtual process in SQL PAL. And so we try to emulate those events. Um, but mm -hmm. obviously, I mean, I, sorry, I shouldn't have used the word emulate. Emulate is like very loaded uh, yeah. <laughs> term Be for <laughs> SQL PAL. But uh, we, we don't emulate anything. But we, uh, we try to give those same semantics of the high uh, memory event and low memory event. Mm -hmm. Is this and, why, by default, the SQL PAL only sees or limits SQL for eighty percent of the memory on the system? So that's also to take into account the memory of SQL PAL itself mm -hmm. and all of the application, yep. the virtual applications running inside. So we try to give ourselves a little headroom, um, just to be safe. Yep. But I mean, obviously, polling isn't ever going to be fast enough. So it's kind of like a very poor um, way of that doing. I mean, we don't have any very op many options though, right? It's kind of like the only way we have right now. Um, there's some work out of Facebook. Uh, there's a product called OOMD, which is kind of an interesting um, way of looking at it where they, they kind of, instead of you having as an application having to know all of the crazy intricacies of the OOM killer and how to tune it and like how to make it respond, they essentially made it an API. So you implement like an interface of how you want Oom to be notified for your application. And it's designed for like containers and Kubernetes and kind of these large deployments where you have many applications and you kind of want to steer the Oom killer towards like, oh, if you're going to kill something, then you should go kill my front end and not my database, please. Um, sure. Or something like that, right? Um, so there's, but even that is not perfect for the SQL server world because kind of like, I don't think it's going to be a click once like you app get install and everything works. There's a lot of tuning and tweaks and configuration mm -hmm. that maybe we as a product team have to go figure out and like generate things and make it just work. But um, those are all kind of things that we've been thinking about. And like other things we thought about is like we could theoretically have a sacrificial pro process that we as SQL Power manage and we kind of balloon that thing to uh, <laughs> allocate memory, right? And then... Wow. If that thing gets killed, then we know, okay, now we can go, we should go shrink, right? Because Loom Killer is active and it's killed our sacrificial lamb. Um, it's so a canary in the coal mine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, Loom Killer is very complex. And unfortunately, the, there is no nice 
way to handle things um, on Linux as there is on Windows right now, at least. So that's kind of, yeah, a problem that we know about and we're trying to fix, um, but it's slow going. Yeah, I've, um, I've talked about that with the team a couple of times. And honestly, the way that you just described it there is the best, like most understandable I've, I've gotten about why it's an issue. Uh, so I appreciate you kind of, because it kind of steps down and it makes sense because you're polling um, yeah. that. And that's why you see it kind of pull down slowly. So thanks for that explanation. Uh, when I say pull down, I mean like, you know, the memory starting to actually get evacuated yeah. and give back to the OS for the audience. Sure. Yeah. But team, this is why this is super important. If you're running SQL Server on Linux or SQL Server in a container or SQL Server on Kubernetes, where in Kubernetes, you don't have a swap. This, if you have external memory pressure like this and it's not responding appropriately, your processes will get killed. And that's going to be a stability issue. And um, kind of understanding the internals of how that works will be valuable to keeping, well, your stuff online, right? And so, cool. All right, so the wrap-up question today, normally we ask, like, what's the one feature that you want to implement um, inside a SQL Server? But today we're going to shift gears and we're going to ask you both, what are the hardware innovations that interest you the most inside a relational database? We talked, you kind of alluded to that a minute ago, PMEM and things like that, but let's kind of go ahead and kind of jam out about what's interesting that's upcoming in the hardware side. Uh, from my point of view, clearly uh, persistent memory continues to be the thing that makes me most excited about, you know, about it, the potential that it has for having a massive impact on how systems are architected, deployed, and enjoyed throughout uh, throughout the world. And I, I think, you know, the the HA story for for persistent memory has to get better because right now it's very nascent. Like Intel has been doing some interesting work on making PMM systems highly available or PMM based systems highly available uh, while keeping the performance on them. Uh, but we're not there yet, right? So there's things that have to evolve uh, in order for, you know, broad adoption of, of persistent memory as, as uh, you know, the, uh, the most used paradigm for for deploying for deploying databases, not just SQL Server, by the way. Like I think this is it's got the potential to change like literally everything. Uh, but you know, we're, it's early days, and I, I would love to see that, you know, like really continue to be invested on. And I, and I know Intel has, you know, definitely a, a lot of interest in making that work overall. Uh, but I would love to see all the other chip makers like really invest in this area, especially Micron and uh, AMD. Let me ask you a follow-up question with that. You envision, since you basically can kick storage out, right, of the von Neumann architecture of CPU disk and memory, right? You're just left with memory, right, and in process, the processor. So do you think that you can have a thing like infinite program state? Like I, don't, I literally don't have to evacuate memory anymore. I can just run forever as a process. Not only that, there's a lot of the baggage of the operating system that just has to go away because there's no need for it anymore. Right, like kernel mode switching, right? We kind of infer to it, right? If we, I mean, and in a system that's like that, 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 there's a lot of just, you know, code that's just overhead. It doesn't help. So, I mean, I think the future, the future is through, focusing on that area, exclusively on that area of technology, uh, that, that leads to a lot of really interesting uh, uh, proposition. But, you know, uh, one of the biggest problems is that it's, hard, it's a hardware-based approach. It's not necessarily super compatible with the cloud-based approach, which is where everyone is deploying these days, right? So innovation in the cloud in, the, in this area is slow, very slow, because changing infrastructure in the cloud is, is, is difficult. And, and, and it's done very slowly, very incrementally. So um, I think we want to see a lot more innovation in that area on premises first, and then we'll see you know, uh, some adoption in the cloud as the technologies mature, et cetera. 
what do you think, Brian, on the hardware side of the house? What are the things that you're interested in? Um, so as a SQL PAL SOS developer, uh, you normally get a lot of the hard bugs. So those hard bugs are somebody corrupted the stack, somebody scribbled memory random places, like um, all these kind of crazy normal C++ C uh, bugs. <laughs> and so one thing I'm super excited about is there's this research project called Cherry where they're enhancing the hardware to have actual memory, protect, stronger memory protection inside the hardware. Mm -hmm. And so a, a programming language like C, C++ could be enhanced to have protections that would guard us guard against these kind of memory corruptions actually like in the hardware instead of you having to go implement them in software, which normally has significant speed um, and performance reduction because of just the overhead of like capturing that state and managing it. So if we could run that in production, you could catch bugs before they even have a chance to corrupt your, your database, right? Or your program state. So uh, I think stuff like that is like where the future of software development is going to really go next level. And like the, the reign of C will be over and <laughs> uh, we'll have <laughs> some sanity back, right? Um, and like the, the land of foot guns will be greatly reduced. Uh, <laughs> Just write everything in Rust. You'll be fine. I knew that was coming. <laughs> Rust still has memory corruptions. I'm, I'm the biggest fan of Rust as anybody else, but it's still possible to corrupt memory and I get it. You know, do nefarious things. For a while, I thought that they were going to come up with a Rust processor. Just remember the Java processor? Like, <laughs> oh, you can run Java on this processor and stuff. And I thought they were going to come up with something like that. And yeah, that's a huge man. I'm disappointed now. Not enough enterprise <laughs> applications running on Rust yet. Wait. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, clearly there's a lot of things I need to improve in techn technology-wise, right? Still dealing with this baggage from like the 70s, like literally. Like, like DNS, no. So this cherry thing, um, is that something, is that like in a memory controller? Like where is that in the architecture of the computer? Uh, I think it's, it's actually in the CPU. Uh, mm -hmm. So they actually like, so there's all kinds of different ways you can do it where like you can tag pointers uh, and Intel, I think expressed that they're working on something similar in the future. Um, Cherry is just like kind of where a lot of the research happened and it was from, from Cambridge. Um, honestly, I don't remember a lot of the details. Uh, <laughs> I just okay. remember being very excited about it and uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, this is like what we do uh, as kind of low level devs at Microsoft, right? Is like, how do we bring these extra productions into our process? How do we stop bug classes? How do we um, reduce pain of customers and, the pain on developers for having to go look at these bugs, right? So mm -hmm. projects like Google Chrome, like they have a similar problem, right? Where they have a huge surface area. Um, it's very easy to exploit and break out of the sandbox. Like there's all these parallels, right? Between browsers and databases and where you have these this customer custom code running inside this place where you have user memory and you, <laughs> you want everything to be safe. So reducing these bug classes and making sure that everything is, um, as checked as possible while also performant is like the requirement for a successful database in my mind. Cool. Well, I think we're coming up on the hour. I, I'm going to have to say this might have been the nerdiest mix extent. Oh, without had. a doubt. <laughs> so I appreciate kind of saying something. Yes. <laughs> right. We have, so I appreciate our Janice, you coming on and kind of helping us uh, understand how SQL Power works. And Brian, thank you so much for sharing. I love hearing the stories, like, like all the, even though we got in all the bits and the bites like that, but hearing the journey, I think is, is so cool. So thank you for sharing that with us and your time. And so that's a wrap.
for this episode of Mixed Extents. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Thank you.